Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net, and by the way, my website has just gotten a brand new, fresh, up-to-date look. My website has been kind of an eyesore for a while, it looked very antiquated, HTML that I taught myself back in the early 2000s, but now I went with WordPress and was able to make it a much more appealing site visually, so I do encourage everyone to check out the new look of Quipster at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what today's review is going to be on Around the World in 80s Movies, I'm kicking off a three-part series kind of continuing on with the two Swamp Thing films I just reviewed on this podcast with more films that we're adapting from the world, the pages of DC Comics, starting off with Batman. Batman being the 1989 film that would take the world by storm, essentially. A cultural phenomenon, as they say. It is a Tim Burton-directed film. It's PG-rated because of violence, some language, and sensuality. The runtime is two hours and six minutes. Michael Keaton stars as Batman. Jack Nicholson as his nemesis, the Joker. Kim Basinger, Robert Wall, Michael Goff, Pat Hingle, Billy D. Williams, Jack Palance, and Jerry Hall are also in the film. The screenplay, among many people, is actually just credited to Sam Hamm and Warren Skarin, even though there are a lot of other people who tinkered with that script within the course of the production. You know, if you think about Batman, there's really no denying that Tim Burton's take on it really is a marvel of art, of set design, and if nothing else, it's quite the piece of eye candy, you'll certainly agree. However, the storyline is merely functional, just enough to be still entertaining. Burton's film does occasionally have the ramshackle appearance of not really being a fully finished product at the time that we saw it in the movie theaters. The script really barely holds its story together. There are a few substantial holes in the logic of its plot and of the motivations of its characters. And from an editing standpoint, there are continuity errors galore. And yet, Batman does manage to maintain a semblance of a solid form, at least for the first hour, logic be damned. It does eventually jettison all attempts at being even tangentially grounded and threaten to fall apart into utter ridiculousness long before the preposterous finale atop this large building with a bell tower. Nevertheless, despite its storytelling flaws as a piece of cinema, Batman still is a compelling and mesmerizing experience if you just take it in as a semi-surreal oddity that would turn into that cultural phenomenon I mentioned back in 1989. Like the comic book of its origins, Batman is set in the bleak metropolis of Gotham City. No, not metropolis, but it is a metropolis where police corruption by the underground crime syndicate runs rampant and it causes a costumed vigilante to stalk the streets to scare the bejesus out of the thugs, all the while that costume all the while that vigilante is dressed as a bat there are a couple of reporters who attempt to cover the masked phenomenon that the public really wants to know more about they want to uncover who the batman is for the public but there's this new crime lord that's emerged in the form of the joker who is this former syndicate henchman who was eventually disfigured and discolored in an accidental run-in with batman The Joker loses his feeble hold that he has on his sanity, and he ends up terrorizing the city of Gotham with only his arch-nemesis, of course, Batman, out to stop him. Now, going back to 1989, there was a lot of hay that was kicked up at the time of the film's production about the casting of mostly comedic, at that time, actor Michael Keaton in the lead role 
of Batman. Audiences before had not even perceived of him as particularly menacing or imposing or even being physically adept enough to handle the fight choreography, so they did not see him in the role. There were tens of thousands of letters of protest that flooded Warner Brothers in the months that led up to the film's release. People even took out ads to decry the making of the film because of Keaton's casting as the hero, and one can only wonder how much Tim Burton's consideration of Bill Murray might have been embraced because he was somebody that Burton had in mind. All things considered, though, when you look at the end product, Keaton is fine. He's not spectacular in the role, but really, he's lost under a thick rubber suit. It could have been played by just about anyone underneath. So Keaton really only kind of makes headway when he plays Bruce Wayne, and he plays Bruce Wayne as somewhat aloof and quirky, and that's about all Keaton could really give to a role that's written fairly thinly. As for Joker, they wanted Jack Nicholson, but he was hesitant to sign on, and that left Warner Brothers to offer the role of the heavy to Robin Williams, who basically accepted, but while he was rearranging a schedule to see about making time for the role, they ended up pressing Nicholson again, claiming that Williams is going to take the part if he didn't, kind of putting a little bit of pressure on him. Nicholson ended up agreeing after they really gave him a very lucrative contract, and it left Williams who was jilted then, miffed to the point where he refused to be in any other Warner Brothers films until they made amends with an apology. And they did by offering him the role of the Riddler in Batman Forever, and which he, I guess, accepted. And then he ended up bailing on after the exodus of Tim Burton and Michael Keaton from that project. And regardless of casting tactics, this really is Jack Nicholson's movie to shine. He plays the Joker with a ready-made connection to the persona that he had been cultivating for the past decade of this man who can be pushed off of his rocker with just a little bit of provocation. Audiences love and expect Jack Nicholson to come unhinged in a very grand way, and this is a role that certainly gives him a lot of room to roam with his manic and spirited and very colorful portrayal. Not very dissimilar to a character Keaton portrayed in a Tim Burton film in the past, Beetlejuice. Kind of interesting that Burton would have Michael Keaton unhinged in Beetlejuice and then have him be subdued here. Nicholson would end up walking away the clear winner of this film, not only from critics, but his contract stipulated between 15 and 20% of the profits as his payment, which all told resulted in staggering payday of over $50 million for his role. I think that still is one of the biggest paydays, maybe still the biggest payday for any actor for any role in any single film. In other casting decisions, Sean Young had been offered Vicki Vale. She was replaced by the producer's original choice, Kim Basinger, who was reticent to really talk, negotiate about it. Sean Young ended up having a horse riding accident that left her out of commission. And so they did offer the role again to Basinger, who then accepted. Young, of course, like Robin Williams, felt a little bit guilty. And then she ended up petitioning to return in the sequel in Batman Returns as Catwoman. But she didn't really get much consideration at that time. She kind of started getting a bad reputation, unfortunately for her. And they didn't want anything to do with her. Billy D. Williams ended up taking the Harvey Dent role on the notion that he would play Two-Face in a sequel. But the producers bought his contract out in favor of Tommy Lee Jones. For Batman Forever, although Billy D. Williams would eventually return to that role, voicing the character for the Lego Batman movie. Kind of an in-joke there. The production design of Batman is like Batman's own character. It sets the mood with very large monolithic buildings, gothic statues that dwarf the people of Gotham into claustrophobic submission. Sometimes it evokes the eerie German expressionism that you find in such films as Fritz Lang's Metropolis with its symbolically onerous, inhumane notions of society that are 
crushed under powerful forces. Sunlight is something that rarely shines in Gotham, and even comical events feel more menacing than they are amusing, and it offers this very stark contrast with the previous notion of Batman from within that highly campy and interminably silly television show that came out in the 1960s, which itself spawned a theatrical release back in 1966 that still played incessantly on television and reruns throughout the 1980s that led up to the film's release. So a lot of people were, in addition to being dismayed at Keaton's casting, were also dismayed that what they were going to see was not a comedy in the tradition of the television show. Now, while many viewers will undoubtedly find Batman to be very entertaining, even if it's on a superficial level, if you actually try to follow its plot, that's where it can become a very frustrating and maybe even eventually fruitless experience for some people who are really into trying to follow plots as they go along. Maybe if it would have helped if the film had any rules, which the film has its own set of rules. I'll give you an example. There's this one scene in which the Joker, who's attempting to buy off the citizens of Gotham's support, their trust, by throwing money at them, he ends up launching a parade through town, and the floats have gas canisters that are attached to them that have poison in them that are going to kill all of the people in the crowds that have gathered there. Batman ends up counteracting this move with a bat plane, which, lo and behold, contains just the right tool to grab cables from floats that control them, and then he ends up getting to release the balloons. And then the Joker happened to have the foresight to just have the right weapon to take down the Batplane, and it goes on and on. I mean, it really is cartoonish in that way. There's also the issue of the intrepid reporters in this film. They are completely in the dark much of the time. It's one thing to have no idea about the nature of the mythical Batman that stalks the streets of Gotham City because he's intentionally trying to stay out of the public eye, even if he's trying to force his way into the public conscience. But it's a pretty large stretch to believe that both of these reporters are invited to the home of one of the wealthiest men in the city, perhaps the world, in Bruce Wayne, and yet neither of them knows exactly what he looks like when they appear at this party thrown in his mansion. They're very surprised to learn who Bruce Wayne is. Like I mentioned, Batman is more like a live-action cartoon sometimes than it is a recreation of the comic book. Perhaps it's appropriate that Warner Brothers' production would result in a dark and twisty version of Looney Tunes here. It's all presented in a very over-the-top fashion, but it does have fantastic visuals. It has a very dynamic soundscape mix of Danny Elfman's iconic score mixed with Prince, yes, the pop star, the funk star, whatever you want to call it, superstar Prince, he has these eerie pop funk rhythms as this kind of cherry on top. It's a real treat for the eyes and the ears. Bat Dance would shoot to the top of the pop charts back in 1989, perhaps more so because of the hype and the fervor for Batman as a film than for the actual song, which is, you know, it's catchy, but it really is far from Prince at his best. And his involvement in the film did come a little bit late into the conception of the movie, and in pretty great haste, he made the entire album within the course of like a month and a half, and Burton was less than comfortable trying to inject the songs into the film. He really didn't see why he had to even put any kind of pop songs into the film at all, though the studio Warner Brothers, who also owned Prince's contract, was really keen to push him, not only for his persona, his mystique persona, which kind of fits in with the film, but they also had wanted Michael Jackson to appear, kind of like a duet in the album that was supposed to appear with Michael Jackson doing some songs, Prince doing some songs, at least one would they would do it together. But Michael Jackson ended up being too busy to participate. So Prince kind of handled the workload there. As far as the thematic material that you can draw from this film, you know, perhaps it's the most appropriate thing for Batman, where style is clearly preferable to substance for there to be a lot of motifs about the nature of imagery as the most preferred trait among us as a society. 
Batman tries to cultivate his own image of formidable fear to drive out the criminal elements that are running rampant over Gotham, and yet he has managed to steer clear of any would-be photographers who could bring that myth down to earth by making him a reality with a photograph. The Joker, whose own image of a smiling buffoon is in stark contrast to the kind of malevolent psychotic that lies within, he wants to portray himself as this strong man, this underworld figure that all other mob bosses operating in town should kowtow to without much of a fight. It's interesting to find that both Batman and the Joker see the value of trying to use the media in order to foster their own public image, with Batman doing his best to create his own shadowy persona that really can't be nailed down. Meanwhile, the Joker, who's willing to embrace the cameras that Batman so actively avoids, is able to inject his own television transmissions directly to the city of Gotham to unsettle the normalcy of the citizens there, showing that no one really is safe, not even the pacifying images that people come to cherish in this city, so full of terrible things going on outside their doors that they go to television to kind of escape, and yet they can't escape Gotham because the Jokers managed to infiltrate them in their very own homes. Now, one of Joker's main terrorist acts upon Gothamites is through the beauty products that sustain their own personal image, and that takes a tragic turn when his main squeeze, Alicia, who was Grissom's gal originally, is subjected to losing her beauty to disfigurement in order for the Joker to make the world as ugly as he is, both outwardly and in terms of the city's morale. The Joker and his henchmen do foreshadow this event. They visit this museum where they proceed to put their own stamp on the great works of art there with their own graffiti, pretty much making it their own. And And the Joker is even shown as trying to paint his own art at some point. He really wants to transform the world into his image. And so basically, he really doesn't fit into the world at large. His mission is to change the world to fit in with him. Bruce Wayne, meanwhile, projects the image of a wealthy entrepreneur. He clearly doesn't find a lot of personal value in that image other than for entertaining his guests. But he does see value in Vicki Vale, who's this very beautiful woman that also doesn't mind wearing eyeglasses or living less than fully fashionably in her off time as this news photographer who usually tries to capture others in their best lights. It's the fact that they see beyond the image to a certain search for truth underneath that binds them. Wayne allows his guard down to a successful news photographer who has to determine what is more important, the scoop or the man fighting for what's right. And there's also the contrast between Bruce Wayne and Jack Napier themselves, with Bruce Wayne creating this second personality that stems from an early tragedy that we end up coming to learn was actually caused by a younger Jack Napier who started out as a lowly crook in Gotham. A tragedy certainly occurs later to Jack Napier when he's transformed into the Joker in this mishap that he feels is caused directly by Batman, thus meaning that they ended up creating each other in a way, in that yin-yang kind of way, although his own psychological schism in his personality has him try to produce comedy out of causing tragedy for others. He finds enjoyment in seeing the world around him suffering. And the difference, of course, is that one figure is moral and the other one is amoral and how they respond to their own tragedies results in what they try to do to their external environment with Bruce Wayne wanting to clean up the cesspool that is Gotham through the ever-serious Batman and Jack Napier fully enveloped into his never-serious Joker persona in order to further sink the city into the morass of depravity that justifies his own twisted existence. Now, all of this falls into Tim Burton's further explorations into society. The 
the tricky ways in which one's physical appearance can affect one's ability to be a welcome member of that society, Bruce Wayne can walk into any social circle and be welcome. But the mask of Batman is needed to traverse the underworld of the criminals and the outcasts that do their business under the cover of night, and also to maintain that ability for Bruce Wayne to have any freedom during the day. The Joker, meanwhile, is horribly disfigured. He's feared as much outwardly for his appearance as he is for the twisted character that's revealed underneath. And it's interesting that when going out in public, the Joker can apply makeup and clothing to cover up his freakish nature just enough, although he fully embraces his own look when he tries to affect his acts of terror. In other contrasts, I guess Bruce Wayne is very much confined by his Batman persona. He has to keep his life and ambition secret to everyone, except for his butler, Alfred Pennyworth, because he needs to be accepted still as a normal member of society in order to function. And while the Joker, on the other hand, has no such restrictions, he knows that society is never going to fully accept him as one of their own, so he doesn't even have to try and can even use that revulsion to further antagonize those who persist in shunning him. And it's interesting that in both cases, the possession of money can temper their very extreme behavior as acceptable and less psychotic, maybe seen as merely eccentric, the police is rife with the corruption and the general public are willing to trust Joker for free cash during that parade. Even the Joker ends up envying money, his enemy, Batman, for the financial means for which he makes such wonderful toys for his arsenal of gadgets and for his ability to use his public image and those contraptions in order to control the media's narrative to his own ways. So a lot to think about there at least thematically, even though the story itself is kind of a mess here. I'm going to give Batman, though, a recommendation, despite those substantial flaws in the storytelling, simply because it is very viscerally engaging. It's, it's indelibly potent in its atmosphere. It does explore some interesting psychological complexities that I just talked about, and it does deliver a consistent level of entertainment. Although, I will say, it does often run counter to many of the criteria that I usually deem as critical for any film to be seen as truly good, I wouldn't necessarily say this is a very good film, although it is very entertaining. Although to its credit, the story that's within the film itself, it does suggest that crowds are captivated by a spectacle. They're drawn to the mystique that shrouds the unknown. And this film itself draws you in with its production design, its psychological portraits of its characters that occur without any explicit explanation, and so, as the Joker would marvel during the course of the film, even if Batman's means defy logic, we're left with mouths agape at all of the wonderful toys that Batman, both the character and the film, employs in the process. So, as Batman says early on in the film to one of his prey on the streets, tell all your friends about me. They did. It would go on to be the biggest film of 1989, the fourth highest grossing film of the decade, only bested by E.T. and the two sequels to Star Wars. It would also be the first indicator in film that the movie-going public was willing. They were able and quite ready to accept a darker and more adult take on these characters who emerged from a medium that many had deemed for a long time as just for kids. So I actually really do recommend seeing Batman. I won't say that it's a great film, but I do think there are great moments within that film and a lot of really interesting concepts such that I can watch this movie almost endlessly and still be entertained by it from some aspect or another, even if I do see its flaws each time I do. So I'm going to give this film a three star out of four grade. Three stars on my scale means I do recommend it for those people who like this kind of movie. And I do think that it actually has a reach beyond just Batman fans. Obviously, it was a huge hit. It was a monument hit so not all of those people were fans of Batman's from the comic books in fact probably a very small amount when it's all said and done but people really ate this up 
and they enjoyed it and they came back for more. So three stars out of four is what I'm giving Batman from 1989. Obviously, the Batman series would continue from here into the 1990s. I'm not going to cover those films because they're a little bit too far into the 90s as far as the films go because all three of the sequels take place in the 90s. Batman Returns, which was also done by Tim Burton, and then Joel Schumacher did the last two films of the series, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Batman Returns, I would put on the same level as Batman in terms of entertainment. I do recommend that. If you like this movie, you'll probably like Batman Returns. As far as Batman Forever, it was a big step down. And Batman and Robin, probably one of the worst films of the 1990s. I definitely don't think that you should go that far unless you are an avowed bad movie lover. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, I didn't want to cover the 1990s Batman films, but I'm going to go to the 70s for my next film because there was another franchise that actually did most of its movies in the 1980s. So I'm going to start off in 1978 for my next film, which is Richard Donner's take on Superman from 1978 to kick off the series of Superman films that primarily took place in the 1990s. So if you're a Superman fan, I definitely think you're going to want to download next week's episode as well. And that'll be coming up next week. Superman 1978. I'm looking forward to that a lot. Until next week, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Watch us. Our eyes lock us, making us see a trippy picture shoe. 